Uh, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. My name is Tyler Downing. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, yeah, usually Micah and I are in different places. Um, and uh, so it's a joy to, to get to spend time with you today. Um, we're going to be in the book of John. If, if you've not been with us before, if this is your first time, we're walking through the book of John. That's kind of what we do here on a normal, in a normal way is just preach through books of the Bible. You're still really early on. Um, and so we're in John chapter 1. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verse 35. Okay, John chapter 1, verse 35. As you're opening up there, um, one of the things that John says at the end of his gospel, he says something like, listen, if I was going to write down everything Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the books. And so what we need to understand from that is whatever John does, in fact, include in his gospel is probably worth paying attention to. He's saying, look, I could have written so much more, but I have written this so that you can know that Jesus is the Lamb of God, so that you can have faith, so you can behold, okay? So John is saying, could have written a lot, this is what I wrote. And one of the things we're going to read here in a second is that John repeats himself. He, he has another, he, he um, he tells the story of another encounter with John the Baptist um, saying the phrase, behold the lamb. And so there's some repetition. And there might be, as you read through the scriptures, or maybe even as I'm preparing to preach, there might be a little something in us that says something like, oh, we talked about that last week, so we can, we can, we can move on. We can, you know, just, we, we heard that, we know what that phrase means, we're good, we, we did everything we could do with that, we're going to move on from it. But if John is saying, there's, I could have written so much more, and he writes this phrase again and again. We should probably pay attention to it. Repetition um, is significant in the scriptures. It means to us, hey, pay attention. So um, John chapter 1, verse 35. We're going to read through 42. Here we go. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the text for today. And this text is recounting to us just a single day in the life of um, John. So John the Baptist, all of this happens in, in just a single day. Um, and on this day, you're going to see the lives of three men be changed forever. I'm wondering if you have a day like that. We heard about a day like that from our folks who were just recently baptized, this day that marks them for the rest of their lives. So here's a few things. Here's what we heard. Aaron said he had claimed Christ early on, but he recognized that you can claim Christ all day long, but if he's not changing you, it's not real. And so in 2021, at Gospel City, he submitted his life to God and he gave us this phrase. He said, now I have peace knowing God is in control. That makes no sense to the world. I have peace when I'm in control. When I've got everything just the way I want it and people are driving at the speed I want them to drive and my kids are obeying like I want them to obey and all this is happening, I've got some peace. That's not what he said. I got peace knowing God is in control. Oh man, that's good news. His wife Brianna tried to check out during an invitation by Trent a couple years ago. Okay, I'm not listening. I've heard this. Not for me. I'm going to just, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let her. And he drew her to himself and she submitted her life to Christ that day. Sam grew up, did some Catholic mass early on, but it was at VBS in Pennsylvania, a work VBS, our VBS, maybe we need to step it up a little bit, um, that he found the Lord, that the Lord interacted with him. Nicole was at a youth group winter retreat. Grant lived his life claiming Christ again. We hear that story frequently, right? Finally, a year ago, he said, I became a real one. I think that might be true for some of us. We've gone to church and claimed Christ, 
and have yet to become a real one? Do you have a day like these guys? Z released control in the middle of the woods in Niles. <coughs> Stories are all so different, but the gospel is the same. And there's the other thing. Some of these folks grew up in church and it was like, I thought I was saved and then I recognized that I wasn't, so I got saved. And then you had other folks that was like, I've done some stuff I'm not proud of. Different stories, right? Different life experiences prior to Christ. But we all need Jesus and we all need all of Jesus and we all need Jesus equally. It's not like for some of us who grew up in church, like I had it kind of mostly figured out and he kind of added the last 20%. No, apart from Christ, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins is what the scriptures say. You're alienated from a life of God ignorant of him because of the opposition and the hardness of your heart, you're dead, all of us. But the ground at the foot of the cross is level. My small group said that last week. I don't remember where I heard that, what was going on, but that ministered to my soul. It was in the middle of small group. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all equally need Jesus, no matter our prior experiences. And in Jesus, we have so much in common and can be unified. Different life experiences before that but in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can be unified as a family. That's some good news. Um, okay, so those are some stories that we heard, some days that marked these recent baptizes. It marked their life. And I'm wondering if you have a day like that. Maybe, um, maybe for you, you would say, you know, I, um, a, a big day for me was uh, my, my child's birth or my wedding day or graduation day or maybe the first day you got like a real job these days that kind of change the course of your life, those are impactful days. Those are major days. But there's a different kind of day we're going to read about. And there's a different kind of day I want to make sure is in your life. For me, it was also a VBS. It was not a work VBS. It was a play VBS, I guess you would say. And uh, I was eight years old. And the structure of the VBS day was... Um, initial song like morning worship time and then we would go and hear a teaching lesson type thing and then right after that was snacks and uh, recreation and so and every day they would say if you want to hang back and chat about any of this we'd love to talk with you if not you can go out and get snacks and play so there was a little bit of motivation to go out and get snacks and play every day but I remember one of the days at VBS I just had no interest in doing that I loved playing sports loved eating snacks but I just had no, it was just like, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a cell in my body that wanted to do that. Every bit of me wanted to stay right, right there and, and hear more and understand more about what I had been hearing. So a lady named Celeste Allball led me to the Christ, led me to Christ in the basement of uh, the church I grew up in in Texas that day. And for about the next eight years, I believe I'm saved, was saved, but I, I needed to go to core class a little bit more because I had some theology work that needed to be done in my head and my heart. So for the next eight years, what I believe functionally is something like, um, I believe that the, the gift of salvation is free and there's nothing I could do to earn it, which is true. I can't, uh, I can't read the Bible enough, can't go to church enough, can't give enough money, can't. I need Jesus and he has saved me um, and I didn't do any of that and I don't deserve it and it is a gift. And in response to that gift, I should thank God. And the way I can thank God is by doing a bunch of stuff that looks boring, like going to church and reading my Bible, um, and not doing a bunch of stuff that looks fun. But it's okay, I get that I should do that. I wanna say thank you, God, and so I'll, I'll obey your commands because I should thank you with my life. But I didn't see his commands as good. I didn't see his commands as um, giving me the, the, the life, life um, abundant. I thought, man, I, I could do life abundant if I could do this, that, and this. And he's saying, no, you live like I'm asking you to live and you'll have life abundantly. And I've learned that that's true. So from eight to 16, that's kind of how I thought about things. Um, and then I remember being confronted um, at the age of 16 with the truth that I had not been living for Christ like I kind of just imagined I was. You know, we can kind of lull ourselves and convince ourselves we're doing pretty okay. Um, and then I got confronted with the fact that I was not doing well. And the way this pastor did it, he said, um, he said, everybody stand up. So we all stood up and then he said, okay, everybody sit down unless you've memorized just one verse of scripture for every year that you've been saved. So I kind of did the math quick in my head. I've been saved eight years and I couldn't think eight verses in my head. I couldn't, I couldn't think of eight verses, just a verse a year. That's nothing. It's nothing. And I didn't have it. So I sat down as did most everybody else. It was like a Tuesday morning at camp. And I remember after that session, 
I was just kind of in a daze for the rest of what he taught. I don't remember anything else the man said. But I remember just thinking, if I really say that I'm a Christ follower, there's nothing in my life that shows it. There's very little in my life that shows it, maybe. And so I was confronted with it. And it felt like I'd been slapped in the face Tuesday morning at youth camp. Um, and I remember just like walking to lunch that day um, in a stupor, just like thinking about my life, thinking about um, my, my position with Christ and those kinds of things and, and just recognizing, man, if I claim Christ, which I do, I, I want to pursue him. And so I began to pursue Christ and over time began to learn that obedience to his commands isn't just like begrudging submission that we have to do. It's life abundant. There is freedom when God is in control is what I began to learn. And so those are some days that were significant for me. Do you have a day like that for you? By the way, I'm going to ask a lot of questions today, so just, you know, get used to that. You don't need to respond vocally to any of them unless you just want to. Um, but I want you to think about it. I want you to ask yourself and let this book read us. It's a mirror. It's a, a, a sword that can penetrate your thoughts um, and discern for you. And so I've got some questions from the text that I want to ask you today. Another question I want to ask you today um, is from the words of Jesus. These are the first recorded words of Jesus that John records. John records Jesus saying to these initial disciples, what are you seeking? What an arresting, penetrating question that is. It's so one that we don't really ask ourselves often enough, really. You know, today you're going you're gonna to get in the car after church and you might say to your spouse, what do you want? And what you mean is, what do you want for lunch? And we have different ways that we talk about what do you want, what do you want, you know. What do you want for Christmas? I'm asking a different question. What do you want? What are you after with your life? What is it that you seek? More directly, why do you come to church? Why do you come? Is it, um, man, I just want to interact with the Lord. I want to worship the Lord. I want to spend time with him, with the people of God. Is it that a spouse maybe kind of drags you along? Maybe it's that you want your kids to be good and moral, and so you need to get them in church. You're doing okay. You're just fine, but, man, I want good moral kids, and so i got to get them in church. I just want to ask you to answer that question honestly. What is it that you want? Why do you come? What are you after? If you go to Manhattan, you might hear the, the answer to this question something like, well, I want to be unbelievably wealthy. If you go to L.A., Hollywood, that scene, uh, what you're likely to hear is I want to be um, really, really famous and also wealthy. I want people to know my name. I want people to recognize me on the big screen. Um, if that's you and you're in Granger, Indiana, you're in the wrong town, um, we, we, uh, we're glad you're here, but man, pursuing fame, you're, you're going to have a rough time. But we might answer the question something like, I want, um, I want a productive, healthy, secure, um, comfortable life for my family. I want my kids to do better than I did, have more than I had. I want health and respect. Maybe you'd say, um, I want good friends and I want good moral kids, so I need to find a good church. I believe we have a great church. I really do. But I don't want you using church to get the things you want. Sometimes we do that. There is a better question to the answer, what is it that you want? A true encounter with the Lamb of God will severely and fiercely change your affections so that your answer to the question, what is it that you want, is radically different from anything I've talked about. And on this day, these three men, Andrew, John, um, which is the author of this book, not John the Baptist. Um, so there's two Johns. There's John the Baptist, and there's his disciple, John, the author of this book. And, and it's this John with Andrew that begins to follow Jesus this day. A little confusing, I know, but I want to work through it with you. And then Andrew goes to Simon Peter and brings him to Jesus. And Simon Peter begins following Jesus. So these early disciples had some things that marked them, that made them stand out and live differently from the rest of the world, that made them say things like, I had all the peace in the world because I knew God is in control. So what is it that marks these guys? And then I want to ask us, does it mark us as well, disciple, follower of Christ? Do the things that mark these early disciples, do they mark you? So uh, mark of a disciple, number one, I want you asking, is this true of me? Disciples follow Jesus immediately. 
Look at how quick this happens. It says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. It's that quick. There is an immediacy to disciples of Christ. And I, I, I think sometimes we, we plan to obey. We make plans to obey eventually, but we don't just do it. We don't just repent in the moment when we feel the tug of the Holy Spirit, when we feel him revealing something in our lives that need to change, that needs to change. Sometimes we make plans. Um, so here we see two uh, of John the Baptist's disciples. This is Andrew, and like I said, most likely John, the author of this gospel. John doesn't really refer to himself like you and I refer to ourselves when we're talking with other people about us. We would use the word I. John always talks about himself in third person, or he doesn't talk about himself at all. When he does talk about himself, sometimes he says the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay, John. Um, but here he just says two of John the Baptist's disciples um, and he doesn't even name himself, but it's most likely John here. So you got Andrew and John, um, and then eventually Simon, like I said a second ago. And, and just as the day before, John the Baptist seen, sees Jesus and exclaims, behold the lamb. He says this phrase, and these men begin following Jesus. Last week, Micah helped us simply behold the lamb. He... Um, he helped us to understand what it looks like to do that and the product of what can happen in your heart when you do. As he's marveling on who Christ is, remember he gave us those five values of Christ and what it means? That's the kind of thing that the Lord can do in your heart as you just behold him. So you were exhorted to do this last week. We were, we were encouraged by our pastor. Spend some time beholding the lamb. So I want to ask you, did you? Did you spend some time beholding the lamb? Asking him to reveal himself to you on another deeper level. Spending some time in his words, slowing down, not just checking the box. Did you behold? I'll tell you this, you beheld something last week. You beheld something. I don't know what that thing was, but we have our gaze, our eyes fixed on something. So what got your attention, your energy, and your focus? What'd you go to sleep thinking about? What'd you wake up thinking about? What would your internet history say? I'm not talking about the worst of the worst. Don't think you're excluded because you're not looking at the worst of the worst online. The enemy wants you sinning. He wants to see your life destroyed. But he'll subtly just distract you as well. And he'll just put stuff in front of your eyes so that you can behold anything but Jesus. He's fine with that. So, so, so what crossed your eyes last week? Just what did you behold? What would your screen time on your phone say? There's no end to what he'll put in front of you to behold, and he just wants it to be anything but Jesus. But, but John tells these men to behold the lamb, and it says they followed. Now, I want to ask, what is, it, what is it that caused them to follow so quickly? Their immediacy is what I'm after, but, but why this phrase? How did this phrase become the thing that caused them to behold the lamb? Well, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, if we go way back in time, we go to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, after the fall, you see God make a promise. He says there will come one day a seed of Eve who will crush the serpent. And so the Old Testament has been asking the question, where is this seed of Eve? Where is this lamb? Where's the lamb? Is what the Old Testament is asking. And so after Adam and Eve uh, fall, maybe we think it's Cain or Abel. We quickly learn um, it's not Abel. Um, he offered a sacrifice to the Lord and it was pleasing. So maybe it's him, except that his brother kills him. And we know it's not Cain because he just murdered his brother. And so, so it's not them. And so we move forward in scripture a little bit and we get to Noah who found favor in the eyes of God and he alone with his family is saved on the ark. Everybody else is washed away and you just got Noah and his family left. It's Noah. He's the seed of Eve. He's, he's the lamb. And then he gets off the boat, plants a vineyard, grows some grapes, waits, lets them ferment and gets blackout drunk in a really embarrassing portion of scripture. So it's not Moses. Or sorry, so it's not Noah. So we fast forward a little bit. We get to a guy named Moses. And Moses is used by God. He rescues the Israelites from Egypt, from Pharaoh. Ten plagues go through, the last one. Um, and, and so they're like, okay, you, you're leaving. Get out of here. And so they leave. 
and, uh, and they cross over the Red Sea and they're in the desert um, and, and Moses has rescued and, and, and he meets with the Lord on the mountaintop and comes down with the Ten Commandments. I mean, this has got to be the guy. But if you fast forward long enough, you'll see Moses lack faith at a place called the waters of Meribah. See, the, there's not much water in the desert. <clears throat> I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but there's not. And so the Lord would provide manna for them to eat and water from a rock. And there was a time in which the Lord commanded Moses to strike the rock with his staff. So he did tap, tap, and water comes out. And then later on, they're thirsty again. And God this time says to Moses, don't tap it with a stick. Just speak to it. That's all you got to do. Talk to the rock. And Moses goes, well, talk to the rock. But the stick worked last time. I think, I think if I touch it with the stick, it's going to work. Like I, This stick is where the power is. So bang, bang, water comes out of the rock. And God says to Moses, you've lacked faith. The, the power is not in the stick. The power is in me. And I'm going to give your people water to drink, but you're faithless right now. And Moses doesn't get to see the promised land because of his lack of faith. So it's not Moses. Then we get to a guy named David. King of Israel, the anointed king of Israel. Um, Samuel, the prophet, comes to Jesse and says, Jesse, I'm supposed to anoint one of your sons. And Jesse lines up, lines up his sons. And Samuel goes, these guys look like kings. They talk like kings. They're tall, dark, and handsome. They got the king look. The Lord is not after that look. The Lord is after the heart. Do you have any other sons? Yeah, I got this one guy. Brings David. Samuel says, this is him. Anoints David as king. It's David. David is the, the lamb. And then we keep reading, and he has his moment with Bathsheba. And the scriptures record he takes her. There's no evidence that Bathsheba was a willing participant in what happened. We don't really know. Takes Bathsheba as his wife, gets her pregnant, and kills her husband to try to hide his sin. So it's not David. And then we get to the prophets, we get to Daniel, and we see these references to an anointed one, uh, reference to the lamb, the sacrificial lamb who will come one day. And then there's 400 years of silence. You get to Malachi, and between Malachi and Matthew, Malachi and the Gospels, 400 years of nothing. And the lamb has not come. And then we get to a barn on the outskirts of a no-name town and a manger to the person of Jesus. And then John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb has come. This one that we've been waiting on, he's here. And in that statement, these guys understand what John the Baptist is saying and they begin to follow Jesus immediately. Sometimes when we hear preaching, we read our Bibles or something. It's clear the Lord is confronting something within us that needs to change. Sometimes we're not doing something that we should start doing or sometimes we're doing something that we need to stop. And so we'll make plans and we consider what it would be like to obey. Are there areas in your life in which you've considered what it would look like to obey Jesus but haven't actually obeyed? Let me invite you to behold the lamb and the thing that you're chasing. Let it just become laughably meaningless in light of Christ. Meditate on Jesus, that he would become so beautiful, so precious, so powerful, that like a focused camera, he's the only thing in focus and everything else is just out of focus. And it doesn't, it doesn't steal your affection and bring yourself in total submission to him. Disciples follow Jesus immediately. Is that true for you? Is there any area of your life that you need to bring into submission to the Lord? Don't wait. Don't wait. Number two, um, mark of a disciple. Disciples abide with Jesus to learn from Jesus. Okay, so verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? What are you seeking? Oftentimes people ask questions of Jesus and he's the one that responds with a question. Right now the tables are kind of turned. These guys respond to Jesus with a question, which I just love. And what their question reveals is their heart. 
He says, what are you seeking? I say, where are you staying? But like I said before, this question is one that we should ask ourselves often. What are you seeking? Some people follow Jesus because they've heard that he can provide comfort and joy and security and blessing and hope and healing in heaven. And it's absolutely true. Yes. But some of us are actually after these things. And we're just kind of happy to follow Jesus to get them. And I think that's what Jesus is after with these guys. What is it that you're seeking? In another passage, I think it's Luke 14, there's a big crowd following Jesus and he turns around and he says a pretty harsh couple of sentences. He says, you want to follow me and be my disciple? You got to take up your cross, deny yourself. He's after followers who want to follow him because he's Jesus. Sometimes we'll evangelize like this. You'll tell somebody about Jesus and you might say something like, you got to follow Jesus. Um, he, will, he will give you peace and he will give you security and he will bless you and he will give you uh, eternity in heaven. And those are all true. Again, they're all true. It's just that Jesus is kind of the, the pathway he, and the goal is this other thing. And I don't want that to be true for us, Gospel City, but it might be even worse than that. Sometimes we do, we, we just kind of do business with Jesus almost in a way that detours around actually having to deal with him. We just want the thing. Or we'll do minimal transactional business with Jesus to keep the health flowing, to keep the peace flowing, the security and provision flowing. It's just kind of a transaction. And if things go south, you pray more until they're good again and then you back off. I want us to seek Jesus because we get Jesus. You got 108, uh, 168 hours in your week. And I'm just kind of wondering how you spend them. We're here together for this hour, hour and a half, and then the other 167, how, how does it look? Does the Bible stay in your car or maybe in your mudroom so you don't forget it next week? You behold earthly things. Do you live complacently? I, I want to love you enough to tell you and I do love you enough to tell you that Jesus is not interested in being your socially acceptable way to getting the American dream. It's not got to be what we chase. We have something better to chase. Now, in following Jesus, like I said, peace, purpose, hope, all of those things are found in him, but they're not the goal. They're not the prize. Jesus is the prize. We follow Jesus because we get Jesus. These disciples, they give their answer in the form of a question, but it's a, such a good answer. What are you seeking? Well, where are you staying? And that word stay, if you read through the rest of it, you'll say stay like three or four more times. It means abide. It's the same word. What are you seeking? Where are you abiding? We want to abide with you. We just want to hang out with you. Oh, what a beautiful answer. We want to follow you, Rabbi, learn from you, teach us to be like you. And the way they ask this question is almost like they're planning to schedule a meeting at some point in the future. Where are you staying is kind of like, hey, I'd love to come around at some point whenever you're ready for us. But Jesus' answer is so beautiful. They immediately follow him. And then when he asks them this question and their response is, where are you staying? His answer is, come and see right now. Not, uh, you know, I'm over there at the thing, at the, you know, the hotel. Come, come by tomorrow. No, no, no. Come and see right now. And that's, that's Jesus' invitation to us Come and see, don't wait. And what do we know about the kinds of places where Jesus abides? Where does he spend his time? Where does he sleep at night? In Luke 9, he tells some disciples who had plans to follow Jesus. They just had some stuff to take care of first. He tells these guys, foxes have holes to sleep in. Birds of the air have nests to sleep in. Son of man has no place to lay his head. That's where Jesus abides. And these guys, they just say, where are you staying? We, we want to be with you. Because they understood that it was better to be with Jesus, wherever Jesus might be. They just wanted to be with him. So they heard John the Baptist tell him, behold the lamb, and they do behold, and they do follow. And now Jesus himself says, come and see. And that's what these baptizees said today. They didn't say it in those exact words, but they, see it. I, they said, I have beheld the lamb, and I've been changed. Come and see. Come and take part. A lot of times what happens when we baptize people is somebody will call me next week or they'll email me and they'll say, man, I thought I was following Jesus and then I heard that story and I realized that's me except I haven't made this decision to submit my life to God yet. 
And the Lord will use these folks and their preaching and their testimony to draw some of you. That's an awesome thing. That's what preaching is. It's behold the lamb. Micah or me or Mitch next week or somebody else gets up here and that's basically what we're doing. We're saying behold the lamb. Come and see. That's what preaching is. Sometimes we just want to shake you out of complacency. I find myself complacent sometimes. I just want to shake you. Man, I want more for you. Come, Lord. Give us more, Lord. I got that text last week. That's how your elders and pastors are praying for you. Come, Lord, more, Lord. Oh, we want more than we can see. God, give it, bring it, do a thing amongst us. And I need that prayer in my own life. Like I said, I get complacent. I get lazy. I get unfocused. I get undisciplined. And I start beholding the stupid trinkets that this world can offer up. I think they'll do something for me that they won't. I need this exhortation. Maybe you do too. John records the time here. Did you see that? It says they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. If you have a different translation, it might say four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, they, they counted time differently. So yeah, it's like four o'clock. John is aware of what time it is because this moment is significant for him. It would mark him for the rest of his life. And I think we all have moments like that. You probably have a moment right now that you can flash back to in your head. Um, there was one time I got a hard phone call, um, just, just, just kind of some bad news. And I remember I was downtown Chicago in the American Girl doll store. Um, I have two daughters. Just if you don't know that about me, you need to know that piece. Downtown American Girl doll store. And I remember on the phone hearing, hearing some news and just like, walking away and going outside and saying, what, what does this mean? Had questions, all that kind of stuff. But I can, I can pinpoint that moment. I can almost see the faces of the strangers. You probably have moments like that in your own life that are so clarifying, so life-changing that you remember everything about them. And that's this moment for John. He was changed from here on out and he hadn't forgotten. So he marks the time. Now, another thing about the time, if you're just writing like some fan fiction about this guy named Jesus that kind of like had some influence for a season when you happen to be around at the same time, I don't think you're including this level of detail. If this is just a fable or a story to prove a point, help you be more moral, you don't include this kind of detail. This is no myth. This is a historical, accurate, theological account of what had happened as John was witnessing these things. So you can trust this book, okay? Um, so I think that's significant. So, you, so, um, so yeah, just going back to the question, what is it that you want? Are you using Jesus to get the things that you really want in life? Or is what you want Jesus just to be with him, just to be changed by him? What we see here is that disciples follow Jesus immediately and they abide with Jesus to be changed, to be like him, to be taught by him. They just want to be with him. Thirdly, mark of a disciple, number three, disciples go and proclaim Jesus. If you have beheld Jesus and he's become beautiful and powerful to you, it does something to your affections. And it did something to Andrew here. All he wanted to do after this moment was go and proclaim. Let's read verse 40. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Andrew had had his affections changed. None of these guys woke up this morning thinking they were going to end their life having their lives changed and now following this man for the rest of their lives. Andrew wakes up, hears behold, the lamb begins to follow Jesus, has his affections changed, and then begins to live differently based on what was happening. He goes to proclaim. And proclaiming the gospel is the mark of someone who has been confronted and emboldened by what Thomas Chalmers calls the explosive power of a new affection. Love that phrase. This guy, Andrew, isn't a really big deal. He's mentioned like three times in the book of John. You know he's not a big deal because when John writes about Andrew, he references him in relationship to Simon Peter. He says, Andrew, you know, Peter's brother, does this thing. It was Andrew that brought Peter to Jesus, not the other way around. But John, John has to reference Andrew in light of what we know about Simon Peter. It's kind of, kind of backwards to me. Um, you know, I've been here 10 years now, and when I first got here, 
um, my children were referred to as Pastor Tyler Downing's kids, Pastor Tyler's daughters. The longer I'm here and the more they grow up, you know what's happening? Oh, you're Claire's dad. Oh, you're Audrey's dad. I kind of love it, but I feel you, Andrew. I get what you're feeling in this moment. Um, different kind of, so, so, so John references Andrew this time and two other times. He references Andrew three times. You know what's happening each time John talks about Andrew? He's bringing people to Jesus. That's what he's doing. It's a boy with the fish and loaves in John 6, and then some Greek guys um, in like John 16 or 19, somewhere along, no, John 12, John 12. He can't help it. That's what he's doing. And I think Andrew would be okay not being the, the star of the show. He's just kind of in the background, but when you see him pop in, that's what he's doing. He's bringing people to Jesus. Just like Debbie brought Z, wouldn't let him go. Oh, the Lord can use us in that way. And that's what Andrew's doing. He can't help it. Sometimes we're so quick to give opinions on various news events. Or we're so quick to tell somebody about the new restaurant or the new movie. We spread the good news of those kinds of things really, really easily. Are you quick to proclaim the gospel? Is it in your head? Andrew immediately begins to proclaim Christ. He's behaving in accordance with this new affection that he has. He's had an encounter with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he begins to live sent. And notice what he says. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. I think we've grown too familiar with this word. We use Christ almost as if it's like Jesus' last name. It means Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Or the anointed one is what those words mean. Jesus, the anointed one. That's what Simon hears. That's what Andrew says. Hey, we have found this anointed one. Another reference from the Old Testament that, that Simon Peter would have understood. He doesn't go to him and say, hey, we found a really good teacher. They called him rabbi earlier. If that's all he was, that's what he would have said. And that's what a lot of people treat Jesus as. I was listening to a radio show last week, and this, Jew, this Jewish person was um, um, talking about reading the New Testament and just listening for how Jesus taught and trying to, like, follow some of his teachings. I'm just like, bro, you're missing it. He's not just your teacher. He's your Lord and Savior. He claimed to be God. So he doesn't say, Rabbi, we, we haven't found a good rabbi. No, we have found a good rabbi, but we have found the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, what would Simon Peter have heard when he heard that phrase? There were three different folks that were anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. These were the kinds of people that were anointed um, in their service to the Lord, okay? So, so when uh, Andrew is saying these words to Simon, Simon has that in his head. You folks in core recently have read about Jesus. Um, and uh, I just want to focus in for a second on one of the things that the writer of a book, John Frame, he says um, about this, uh, Jesus being the anointed one. He says, as king, he is the mighty creator who rules heaven and earth and ensures the redemption of his people. As prophet, he is God's very word who teaches us God's truth. And as priest, he offers his perfect life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he ever lives in resurrection glory to make intercession for them. While there were plenty of people in the Old Testament who fulfilled these roles, they all fell short. The Old Testament is full of messianic prophecies promising a day when God would send a prophet greater than Moses, a priest greater than Melchizedek, Melchizedek, and a king greater than David, and that man is Jesus. The word became flesh, our great high priest, king of kings. That's who Jesus is. That's who Andrew is proclaiming. That's who Andrew had met and beheld. And he'd been so changed that his first impulse was to go and find his brother and tell him, we have found the long-awaited Messiah. He's here. It's him. Question. Do you find this impulse inside of you? I got a really great text, a super encouraging text. I think it was yesterday. Just asking about some various gospel tracks. Can you, you know, is there some kind of booklet that we use that helps us engage with people with the gospel? Um, I want there to be within us, Gospel City, if you have beheld the Lamb, there should be something inside of you that wants others to know what you know. If you love Jesus and you love people and you know they don't know him and you do and you've seen, 
there should be this, this thing within you, this burn, this desire to talk, to, to talk about him to people that don't know him, or even if you don't know if they know him, just to talk about him. Does it permeate your thoughts when you interact with people? Does your heart burn with a desire that others would come and see and behold? Or have you been saved too long? It's a phrase a preacher in seminary gave me years ago. He said, don't you ever get saved too long where the gospels just become kind of stale and old news and you take it for granted. No, we meditate. We don't grow past it. We celebrate it. We marvel at this Jesus who takes away sin and we let it motivate us to go and find and tell and invite others to come and see I'm reading this book called The Dynamic Heart. Um, Jeremy Pierre is the author. He says, faith plugs into the regular functions of your heart, what you think about, the things you want in life, and the choices you make, and it reroutes your day, your week, your month, and your year. If you believe that a crucified and risen Galilean sits on the throne of the universe right now, ordering all things to glorify the triune God in a sweeping drama that spans all of human history, you'll understand your life is not the center of the universe, that your comfort, your concerns, your satisfaction are not the highest purpose in your life. No, you understand your purpose is to be proclaiming the good news about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who gives you his righteousness, who absorbs God's wrath on your sin and who invites you at the cost of his blood into relationship and who preserves your life into eternity. That's the lamb. Andrew goes and finds his brother. He starts with those closest to him. I think that's a good pattern for us to follow. We start with our closest circles of influence. You've got people in your home probably that need to hear this news. You disciple them, you raise them. Your own kids, your spouse, maybe your extended family. Maybe there's that random uncle you've kind of given up on. Just go and tell. Maybe it's a coworker, somebody you sit close to in class, something like that. There should be this, um, this desire within you. The, the, the more opportunity you have with somebody, the more obligation you should feel to tell them the truth about Christ. So you start with those closest to you, but you go further, you go to the Michiana, you go to, and eventually you go to the world. That's why we go to places like Puerto Rico. It's why we send missionaries all across Africa. So while we've got missionaries in different parts of the world, not all of us are going to go. I think a lot more of us should. I think you should get your passport if you don't have a passport. One less barrier to going. But we send and we pray and we ask God to do things through these folks. Because there are people that haven't heard. So you've got your circle of influence for a reason. You're not going to Africa tomorrow, probably, but you're going to work. You're going to school. Be a disciple maker right where you are. I love it when I'm at meet and greet and there's folks who from time to time bring me people that they've brought to church and I love it. One of them is right here. Robo. I mean, I think I meet like a friend of Robo about every other third week. <laughs> hey, this is somebody else I know that I'm bringing to church today. I'm just like, I love this. I'm excited to meet them and I just like Robo's on fire for Jesus. He gets it. He gets it because he's beheld. So what are your conversations like? Do you only talk about the things of God during church or maybe your small group, maybe your Bible study, but other than that, he doesn't really find his way into conversation? Or, or is he in your day-to-day -day interactions? Just comes up randomly. So you're talking with your spouse or somebody somewhere. We're so comfortable talking about things that don't matter, whether sports, maybe even politics. And it feels awkward to bring up Jesus. Do you know why? Because his name has power. See, we can talk about the weather all day and we can disagree and you can like snow or hate snow and I can like snow or hate snow and we'll get along fine. It's no big deal. We're just talking about snow. It's no big deal. By the way, my answer is no. I'm, I've been loving this winter so far, so there you go. We can still do life together, be unified. Those kinds of things don't have power. Sports, I mean, some people get up in arms about it. It's ridiculous. Like, dude, it's a sport. Come on. It's not a big deal. I think I've already forgotten who won the Super Bowl. You, you won't know in five years. I'll, I'll tell you that. It doesn't matter. There's no power there. Sure, our country throws a lot of eyes on it. I mean, people beheld the Super Bowl last week, sure. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. That's why we can talk about it. You bring up Jesus, that name demands a response. Whew. You either submit to him as king or you reject him and deny him. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. 
That's why you can feel the conversation change when you bring him up. That's why it gets awkward is because his name is powerful. Let me just invite you. It is awkward. Own that awkward and push past the awkward. It's like seven seconds. Just face it. Just think, count it. Okay, I'm going to say the phrase and it's going to feel awkward for like seven seconds. And then we're off and we're running. Or they reject and that's fine because it's not your job to get them saved. That's the Lord's job. It's your job to go and tell. Then you've been obedient. That's what success is. It's just faithful obedience. You let the Lord do the rest of that work. That's what Andrew does. He goes, finds him, tells him, and brings him to Jesus. That's what we do. So embrace that awkward, push past. If they shut you down, fine. But just be comfortable with that. And I, and I think, honestly, I think a few more people than we would consider, than we would really think, I think they're open to it. I think you'll find, if you actually do this, I think you'll find more people that are willing to engage in this conversation than you think. And, and you don't have to start all super awkward. I mean, like, you like own the awkward. So this is what I would say. Um, hey, this is a little awkward. What, do you have any spiritual beliefs? What do you believe about God? You go to church anywhere? Robo's shaking his head. That's how it starts. And you don't know. You don't know how it goes from there. They either shut you down, and you've been faithful, and you've done your job. That's all you can do. It's a narrow road, y'all. The majority of time, it's going to be a shutdown. It's a narrow road. But, but, but take the opportunity. Take the chance. Embrace the awkward. That's what John the Baptist did. That dude was awkward. Think about how he lived his life. Awkward. But three new followers began to follow Christ that day because awkward John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's be a people who are so fired up to share because we've seen it ourselves. We've come and we've seen, and we've tasted, and we've beheld the Lamb and we want this for others in our life. Go after them. So disciples follow immediately. They abide with Jesus. They proclaim Jesus. And finally, Mark number four, disciples are in process of becoming like Jesus. <sighs> That's good news for me. I want it to be good news for you because you're not there yet. You haven't arrived. I've asked some penetrating questions, come at you a little hard maybe. And maybe you're going, oh gosh, yeah, I got some room to grow here. Listen, if none of these affections are in you at all, I want to have a conversation with you about how you became um, to call yourself a Christian. I want to make sure that you know Christ. But most of us are kind of wavering. Sometimes we are, sometimes we don't. We mean well and we get a lot, you know, we lose focus in some of those things. Oh, point number four is a beautiful point. Let's read it. 42. Um, Andrew brings Simon Peter to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. That's what the name that Jesus had given him means. It means rock. But Peter ain't no rock. Have you read your Bible? Peter is a vacillating, undisciplined, unfocused, impulsive man. He's not a rock. And yet Jesus changes his name. He doesn't say, one day I'm going to turn you into a rock. He says, you, you were Simon. Right now, upon meeting me, you're now a rock. But if you read through the book of John, you'll find that Simon still has room to kind of earn this name, to kind of own it a little bit more than he does. Um, he's not a rock yet. Though Jesus has called him a rock, he's still learning what that looks like. I think that's true for a lot of us. We call ourselves Christians. We're little Christs. And, he's, and we're in process. And that's a good thing. You see John talking about Simon Peter, and he uses that name. Sometimes he'll use the name Simon, like if Simon's just kind of acting like an idiot, um, faithless and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of times he calls him Simon Peter. He uses both names. Because it's like he's seen this guy, and he's just vacillating between these two different kinds of people, Right? Um, I like to think of the old name as like what your parents might say when you got in trouble when you were a kid. They use your middle name, maybe. Um, my, I go by my middle name. My middle name is Tyler. And so my mom had to like get creative on how to like get my attention when I was acting like an idiot. So she came up with the phrase JT Tyler Downing, which seemed redundant to me because you're saying the T twice. The T applies to Tyler. And then you're saying, Ty I never told her that. I wasn't like, mom, I just need to inform you. Um, you're, this didn't quite make sense semantically. No, I just let it ride because I'm in trouble. Um, and I wonder if that's like when John refers to him as Simon, if you should read Simon and go, oh no, oh crud, what's he about to do? Oh man, he's missing it. Because he does, he does. 
Jesus calls him a rock and he's got to learn to live in it. He's got to learn to own that name, to act like somebody who is, in fact, a rock. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus can do. As we spend time with him, as we behold him, we become like him. You become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. Christian little Christ, that's what that word means. You have a new identity. And as you behold him, Jesus will make you into the kind of person that bears that name. You're in process. Keep going, keep beholding, keep repenting, keep submitting. Later in Acts 2, you'll see not Simon, not Simon Peter, you see Peter. The first sermon preached so the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Everybody's speaking in different languages that everybody can understand, but that's weird because these guys didn't speak that language before. And they're perplexed and they're confused. One guy's like, I just think they're drunk. I don't know what's going on with them. And it's Peter who stands up and he says, they're not drunk. Let me tell you what's going on. And then he begins to preach. And his preaching is bold and it's strong and it's anchored and it's confident and it's penetrating. And you can tell he doesn't give a rip about what these people say to him because he says phrases like this, Jesus whom you crucified, he preaches boldly and there's a response. It says they were cut to the heart by Peter's preaching. Peter had learned what it looks like to be the rock he began preaching like a man who knew his name. So, four marks. Are you marked by these kinds of things? Do you follow Jesus immediately or do you have plans to someday? Do you want to abide with Jesus because you get Jesus? Do you want to proclaim others, proclaim him to others? And then, are you being changed by him as you submit as you behold, becoming like him. This is what discipleship is. And we don't do it alone. That's why we have each other. We exhort each other. We strengthen each other. We spur each other on. We call each other to be these kinds of people. And in small group, when we fail, somebody should be calling us out on it. It's a wonderful thing. So what is it that you want, Gospel City? I want the answer in my life. I want the answer in our church to just simply be, we want Jesus. May it be true. Let's pray. Father, I want to confess that in, in the course of my week, I don't behold you. I behold other stuff, just the meaningless, stupid trinkets of the world that don't offer life abundant, though they seem appealing. I want to confess that there are other things I fix my gaze on that's not you. And at times I chase you because what I can get from you, not just because I get you. God, Father, help us behold the Lamb. Help us behold Jesus because we get Jesus. And may we be changed into the kind of people who go and tell and bring others. Father, make Gospel City um, into a kind of church who is so on fire for you that we can't help hold it in. Father, give us more than we see. In your name I pray, amen.